Hi, my name is Irfan Vafai. My name is Molly Kick. And I'm Wizzy Brown. And this is Bugs by the Yard, the podcast where we're going to talk about insects in urban gardens and landscapes. And we are all with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension through the Department of Entomology. Now, myself, I work mainly with greenhouse growers, so those that grow the ornamental plants or the trees and shrubs that go in the landscape. I do a lot of research in how to manage different pests or how to use beneficials to manage some of those pests. How about yourself, Molly? I work a lot with homeowners, master gardeners, master naturalists. Um, I work with the pest control industry, so I, I my field of expertise is mainly structural um, type pests and entomology. And lately I've been doing a lot with beekeeping. How about yourself, Wizzy? Um, essentially I will listen or I will talk to anybody who will listen about bugs. <laughs> <laughs> but I talk to a lot of the same people that Molly talks to, uh, pest control company people or pest management professionals, um, homeowners, just kids, whoever. What, I am. What, what got you both kind of interested in entomology? I kind of got into it by accident. I just, I was a biology major. Um, I actually wanted to be a podiatrist because um, my dad wanted to meet me to be a doctor. And so I wanted to do something that kind of is what he wanted me to do, but not. That was my way of rebelling. And I took a class, I took an entomology elective and I just loved it. And then I decided I'll just double major. And then I stuck around and got my master's. So mine was by accident, I think. Very nice. Did your father, does he happen to be Persian? Because that's like every Persian father's dream is their kid become a doctor. No. And usually not like an insect doctor, usually a human doctor. <laughs> no, uh, my dad is actually a vet, a veterinarian, and he wishes he had been a human doctor instead of an animal doctor. And so that's why he wanted us, he wanted me to do that. He knew I liked science, but he never, he never wanted our, uh, uh, the kids. He's never pushed us to be veterinarians. So he said he wanted me to be a doctor. I didn't. And then here I am. And here you are. <laughs> How about yourself, <laughs> Wizzy? How did you get into bugs? Uh, well, I was always the weird kid that was in the yard picking. I grew up in the middle of nowhere. We had two stop signs in my town and no gas station or anything like that. So I was always outside playing and I was playing with bugs and the thing that really kind of cinched it for me was I got this book when I was in, I don't even know, like third or fourth grade. It was called Ants Are Fun. And it was all about ants. And that inspired me to do my science fair project in sixth grade on ant farms and ants. And I made my own ant farm and compared tunneling to the tunneling that was going on in a store-bought ant farm. And I did a report on ticks when I was in fifth grade. So I was just kind of that weird kid, I guess. I didn't know that I could do entomology as a career. And so when I went to uh, college, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a geneticist and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, kind of like Molly, I was like, I'm going to take an entomology class just because, you know, I like bugs and yeah, I changed my major two weeks in and I was done. Much to I, my mother's dismay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could be a, a geneticist that use uh, insects as the model organism, but... Uh, yeah, no, that, that boat's kind of... Yeah, that's sailed, that's sailed a little bit. The yeah. ship has sailed. 
<laughs> I think that's not uncommon. You know, I was in the similar boat where uh, entomology was never on my radar of potential careers. You know, I think um, one of the, you know, the, the career path that I was thinking initially was a medical doctor. And uh, after shadowing a doctor, I just kind of was not was not super inspired. If anything, it, I felt a little sad, a little sad. I, I did follow a, a pediatrician, and uh, and and it was a it was a rough day. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I had a professor that taught uh, chemical ecology and about like interactions between insects, whether the insects and insects and plants and. Uh, I mean, you both are very familiar with volatile chemicals released by plants. Like when a plant chews on a, uh, oh, sorry, when an insect chews on a plant, uh, that plant can release chemicals to attract predators of that of that insect, and uh, how that could be used in an agricultural setting for natural pest control, biological pest control, and that kind of really inspired me into the field. Which now brings me to the next thing I kind of wanted to talk about was what are some of your favorite uh, insects or insect interactions in urban landscapes? Minor, minor cockroaches. I love cockroaches. Cockroaches. <laughs> well, okay. You know what? A lot of listeners are probably going, ew, right now. So, yeah, so why, why cockroaches? What, what, uh, what is it about cockroaches that fascinate you? Well, when I, when I was going to college, like my undergrad, I worked in the insectary for the university and I was responsible for taking care of all of these different insects. And we had tons of different kinds of cockroaches. And it was just fascinating to me how they were all so different yet so alike. And I mean, it got to the point, and this is kind of disturbing, you know how when you walk into a restaurant, it, well, if you've been in pest management, you know, if you walk <laughs> into a restaurant, you can tell if they have roaches or not because you can smell it. And when I was working in the insectary, the different cockroaches had different smells. And so I actually got the information or I figured out which ones could smell a certain way. There was one that smelled like apples and cinnamon that I absolutely loved. And I would always poke at them <laughs> to make them <laughs> to get more smell. smell. <laughs> <laughs> so then when I went to graduate school, you know, my major professor was trying to get me to work on termites. And I was like, I don't want to work on termites. I want to work on cockroaches. And so I did a research project on parasitoids of cockroaches and controlling them with the little tiny wasps that lay their eggs in the cockroach egg cases. And, you know, I just, I have this fascination of cockroaches because, I mean, if you think about it, they're somewhat primitive insects because they haven't really changed much in millions of years, but they are so incredibly successful at what they do and they can go into all these different niches. And, you know, some of them are absolutely beautiful. And I know that's usually the statement that really sets people over the edge. They're just like, uh, <laughs> cockroach is beautiful. Absolutely not. But we have some in, you can find them in compost piles. They're called uh, Cuban cockroaches. They're the bright green ones. Absolutely stunning. There's another one that is the pale bordered field cockroach. That is my absolute favorite. I actually have a tattoo of one. And it's just, I, I just, I does, it, does the tattoo smell like apple cinnamon or no? It does not. Is it a scratch? Wouldn't is it a scratch cool and smell tattoo? Scratch and sniff? That would be awesome. <laughs> How about you, Molly? What is your favorite uh, insect or insect interaction in urban landscapes? I just think any social insect is interesting. I, I did my graduate work on fire ants and interactions with them and other species of ants. And um, I thought they were pretty cool. But then when I started 
really learning more about apiculture and honeybees, I was like, man, I studied the wrong insect. So I just think, I mean, like, you know, they have this caste system and they all get along and it's like this little community and they get along better than humans do. So it, I don't know. It's just, I think it's, it's a very complex relationship within their colonies um, for being such a primitive animal. I mean, it, I mean, they work better than humans um, in that, except the fact that they're all females. I mean, the males really, I mean, they, <laughs> they got it rough say, in until, a lot of those until systems. Until they throw the males out in the winter, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But I mean, they all have, they know their job. They do their job when they age out to another job, they start doing that. Like there's no training that goes into it and they don't argue about what their job is you know? <laughs> yeah, because there are no males in the system <laughs> <laughs> maybe they do argue and we just don't know how to interpret that dance yet it's, it's very true tiny little arguing An arguing dance maybe like you know the little dance they do to tell uh you know the other bees where where the the, the nectar or pollen is maybe like when they're angry, they actually just do the completely wrong direction, you know, and, and get them all just misled to a completely wrong area. That would be fantastic. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Like if we found like sarcastic bees. <laughs> hey, somebody pick that up as your dissertation. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, Wizzy, you had kind of mentioned what one of my favorite interactions, which is those parasitic wasps, you know, and for those listeners that aren't familiar, it's basically the movie alien in your backyard. So, I mean, there's uh, parasitic wasps of, of most organisms that we know of. And essentially what they are is, is a tiny, usually a wasp that lays an egg on and or in another organism and needs to uh, live on that organism as a part of its life cycle, usually the immature stage. And so um, one of the common ones we see in the land, urban landscape are um, some aphid wasps and they will lay eggs usually in the inside. The larvae will eat on the insides of the aphid as the aphid continues to feed and until nothing's left but the carcass of the aphid. And then that larva will, will basically emerge, will metamorphose into a new wasp and, and emerge as a new wasp. And each of these wasps can kill, you know, hundreds, hundreds of aphids uh, in theory, at least in terms of their egg load. And, um, and so if you think about it, when, when we're talking about you know, managing some of these pests, you can go straight to, you know, your, your uh, big gun pesticides, uh, but you're also going to wipe out a lot of your beneficials as well. Whereas uh, if you learn to recognize some of these beneficial interactions, some of these beneficial parasitic wasps, then you might be able to actually ease off and let them kind of clean things up over time if they're there, if you can recognize them and, and realize they're in good populations. So, I'm hoping uh, through this podcast, we might learn a little bit about some of these pest insects, right? And, and uh, how they feed, about their general life cycle and how to manage them, but also about some of these beneficial insects that we often see in the urban landscape and how to promote them or how it is that they actually um, benefit our, our gardens as well. So Irfan, do you actually do research on the parasitoids that you were talking about? So, yeah, I do quite a bit of research on how to integrate those parasitic wasps into greenhouse production. So uh, in some situations where you have relative monocrops, such as poinsettias, poinsettias are, you know, grown and, and sold between November to December, and they're producing large quantities with some of our greenhouse producers pushing out about three and a half million poinsettias every single year. Wow. And so you go in and there's just like these massive airplane hangar size greenhouses of just poinsettias as far as your eyes can see. And they have one main 
pests. I mean, there are, there are several pests, but one of them that is the main problematic pest, which are white flies, specifically down here, at least anyways, sweet potato white flies. And uh, there is both a parasitic wasp and a predatory mite, both of which that are commercially available. So you can buy them in large quantities. These companies just mass produce them. They figured out a way to basically rear them uh, to, to large quantities and you can buy them and release them in your greenhouse. And so uh, in this case, we were looking at, this is called augmentative biological control. So you're like throwing in very large numbers of your parasitic wasp or predator. That's contrary to say, or, or different than let's say conservation biological control. So if we're in an urban landscape, we, we don't want to throw a bunch of beneficials in there. We want to conserve them with, you know, extra nectar or pollen sources, uh, creating habitat uh, for them and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, back to the greenhouse. Yeah, we were looking at, you know, can we use these parasitic wasps and predators to suppress the white flies instead of what they usually do, which is like weekly insecticide sprays. And uh, so far, it seems like, you know, it, it can work, uh, especially in greenhouse settings. It's a little nuanced. It's a little involved, uh, but it certainly can work and be economic as compared to pesticides. So, yeah, that's that's a part of my uh, research program. Do y'all are y'all involved in research? Kind of what are your um, research programs look like? Well, I have a question for you. Yes. On that mini poinsettias that they're growing, is that because we just have the climate in Texas? So they're supplying it to the entire United States or just do they lose like 50% or people just buy that amount? Uh, I'd say people just buy that amount. Now, Texas is a, a relatively large producer of poinsettias, but uh, there are some other larger produce, other states that are larger producers of poinsettias than, than Texas as well. I wouldn't say it's something specific to our climate. Uh, if anything, you know, there's, there are situations like when you go further Northeast, um, it's slightly more ideal in some ways because as the poinsettias start to, you know, you start growing them and they start to finish, the climate outside the greenhouse starts to get really cold. And you don't have to worry about pests coming into the greenhouse. You now have a much more isolated system that you can control. Whereas for us, I mean, November, you can still have, you know, November and December, you can still have plants outside that are highly populated with white flies and can be a source of, of pest inf uh, influx into the greenhouse. Uh, so how about yourselves? Uh, how about Molly? What kind of, what, what kind of research do you do? Um, I do research on termites, ants, uh, mainly fire ants, um, bed bugs. So structural, what are considered structural or somewhat landscape pests. Um, to be honest, I don't love doing a lot of research, so I don't do as much of it as you guys do. Um, so it's gotta be something that really thrills me for, or I have to do it to, to actually get out there and do it, but it's mainly, you know, mainly what we consider to be structural or urban pests. I mean, research is tedious. Uh, it's it's a it's a lot of work. It's a lot of often manual labor and counting of things. You know, I think um, TV TV shows or movies make makes uh, doing science seem pretty incredible. And I think we even do a bit of a disservice uh, to our younger generation when we you know uh, do some simple chemistry explosion or whatever and say it's science because. Um, that's a demonstration, right? That's not really collecting replicated data and analyzing with statistics to draw some kind of conclusion about some natural phenomena, right? Uh, which, which again is, is, I mean, it's, it's long and tedious and you certainly need to develop a, uh, interest for it over time. And that's, yeah, definitely not something that everyone kind of jumps onto. No, well, I think a lot of times on the, the television, 
they make it look all quick and fast and fun. <laughs> and it's like, they don't show you sitting for hours at a microscope counting ants and or like spending sort of three so, months trying to figure out your statistics and why right, it's not working. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that whole, you know, we're, yeah. we're showing the cool part of it, but then when the people go to school for it, then they're like, well, what this, this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> this, is <a> <laughs> right. this is work. <laughs> I think they also yeah. show like, um, I think we also think that it's like really complex and like, but it can be really, really simple. I remember one time, um, Wizzy remembers Bart Drees and he was just, he had like dowel rods and peanut butter sitting on top of the dowel rod. It was just, you know, stuck sticking straight out of the ground. And he had different, um, plastic wraps that were impregnated in pesticide. And that's all the project was, was trying to figure out what kept the fire ants from getting on top of the peanut butter. So it can, it like, we, we like, you know, dramatize it and and make it look really sexy, but sometimes research is not that way. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like a lot of entomology research, like a good part of the lab is just arts and crafts section. <laughs> you have to like, you know, glue sticks or yes, like figure out how to make or, something that doesn't exist to, yeah. you know, catch whatever you need. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, now, I do you, a lot of the yeah. research that Molly does, but I also have a, like a huge ongoing project that I've been doing since 2005. So it's, been going on for a really long time but it's a it's a demonstration it's not like a a research project but it's a community-wide fire ant program where a whole entire neighborhood does fire ant management at the same time twice a year and we've actually shown reduction in the fire ant numbers in the neighborhood um it's been keeping them suppressed i mean they're not gone they're not going to be eradicated but it's definitely you know, a better situation than it was before this program started. And with everybody participating, it takes longer for those fire ants to reinvade the areas. And so we have um, more species of ants showing up in the neighborhood now, whereas before the project, it was mainly just fire ants because they just kind of took over everything. So I I actually enjoy that project because I get to do a little bit of you know, field work where I go out and I look for the fire ants and count numbers and see what ants are out there. But then I also get to do the people aspect and teach them why we're doing this and why it's important for everybody to kind of participate in the baiting to keep the numbers down. That's pretty wild that you've been doing it 15 years. And I mean, that's like a testament to show you can't eradicate fire ants. You've been treating twice a year for 15 years and they're still there. Yeah. The cool thing is though, is the, we have tawny crazy ants in this neighborhood too, but they have never gotten to enormous outrageous numbers, but Hmm. they came into the neighborhood kind of mid, I don't know, mid demonstration or whatever. We were already in the thick of the fire ant stuff. So I'm just wondering if with everybody in the neighborhood participating in the baiting if it's actually helping to keep those tawny numbers down. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Again, another research project for some. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's like, and it's like the really nice thing you'd mentioned about uh, being an extension in general is that uh, you're not just doing research. Oftentimes there is a pretty strong people component as well. So, you, you know, if you do get tired of being in that mundane kind of counting, you also have these days where you're out in front of a crowd talking about insects. Uh, which is quite nice. And I think, you know, I can really appreciate uh, the work on fire ants. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners can as well. Uh, Originally being from Canada and taking, you know, fire ant 
uh, free lawns for granted. <laughs> I can't remember the yep. last time I've, <laughs> I've laid on the lawn because just out of fear of fire ants, you know, whereas in Canada, you don't even think twice about it. You know, you never have to think about being worried about your kids running in the backyard or, or some new yard that you don't know if it's been treated or not. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I think, uh, a problem that we've been tackling and will continue to tackle for, uh, for, for the foreseeable future, but hopefully research will help you know, help us uh, decrease um, some of those fire ant issues as we go forward. Well, I think that's all we got for today. So this is just our introductory episode. I think the idea is now every single time we will talk about um, some kind of pest complex or insect complex and some research related to it, again, as it relates to urban landscapes. And uh, make sure you subscribe to our podcast and share as, as you see fit. And we hope to have you tune in again. My name, again, is Erfan Vafai. I'm Molly Keck. And I'm Wizzy Brown. We're with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Department of Entomology, and this is Bugs by the Yard. <laughs>